You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. It must have dominated the skyline, the temple in Jerusalem shining on the hill as a symbol of pride, of glory, not only for the 80,000 residents of Jerusalem, but for Jews throughout the world. It was magnificent. And it was central to the people's sense of identity, for it was God's permanent dwelling place. And it was in their city, in Jerusalem, standing tall as a sign of God's covenant with the people. Fifty years before our story, Herod the Great had begun a significant restoration and expansion of the temple site. It was one of his massive construction projects throughout the country. He was determined to make a mark in history, and he maybe score a few points with the populace as well. So his temple was to rival Solomon's famed temple of old. And the project extended out into the city as he redid meandering streets into a laid-out grid of paved roads. He built his own palace with a moat and a water garden. He built an amphitheater and a hippodrome, which were still under construction in Jesus' day. Now, tradition forbade building beyond the footprint of Solomon's original temple. So to get around that, Herod built a 35-acre platform, the greatest ever heard of, the historian Josephus would say, on which the temple itself would sit. And the western wall where people pray today was part of that 16-foot thick platform. The blocks could be up to 30 feet long and weigh 50 tons. And in its day, the temple was the focus of identity, of religious, national, and social identity. The people drew their meaning and purpose from this grand edifice on a hill. And even those who had disowned the temple such as the religious sect of the Essenes, who believed that the temple system itself was corrupted, they too expected a day when God would bring about a new temple. The temple, with all of its rituals and ceremonies, was overseen by those of the priestly class, descendants of priestly lines of Jews. In Jesus' day, though, Roman officials actually had a hand at appointing the high priest. And we know that Roman soldiers were housed nearby in a building like a watchtower over the temple. 
Many people of that day viewed the temple authorities as collaborators with the Roman occupiers. Their perceived collusion with the Romans, I think, was probably a calculated risk to keep their current social, political, and economic power in the city and beyond. Perhaps they rationalized it. Their acquiescence must have seemed to them the only way to preserve the institution they loved, the temple itself. Now, at the time of this story, we can imagine that Jerusalem was all abuzz with the festival of Passover, that it would have been bustling with tourists and the city swelling to over 100,000 people as the faithful made their pilgrimage into Jerusalem. And the festivities would have spilled out into the streets, families and friends gathering together to remember the stories of Passover, of Moses confronting the power of Pharaoh, of him leading the people from bondage of slavery into liberation and new life in the promised land. And in the midst of all this hubbub of preparation, Jesus walks on to the Temple Mount, into the court of the Gentiles, and there he comes upon this sprawling scene of merchants and money changers and pilgrims and worshipers. There's all manner of livestock there, cattle, sheep, doves, and more. You see, in order to present a sacrifice at the temple, a worshiper would need an unblemished animal. And who could get an unblemished animal all the way to Jerusalem? So the merchants were a necessary component of this larger religious temple system so that pilgrims could follow through with the prescribed sacrifices, that part of their religious tradition. And the money changers, they were there for a purpose too. They performed a much needed service, exchanging money so that people could pay the annual temple tax. Visitors from all over the empire and residents of Judea needed to exchange their Roman currency, those coins inscribed with Tiberius, son of God, and the image of the emperor on them. Those needed to be changed into temple coins, into half shekels with no graven images upon them. And the money changers were the ones who made that possible. So we can imagine the scene with folks bartering for the best price for an unblemished lamb or perhaps going from table to table looking for a better exchange rate for their foreign coins. We know that Herod allowed the moving of these financial transactions up onto this newly constructed temple platform, onto the steps leading up to the temple. And this would have been the place where everyone could have gathered. The Gentiles could be there, women, Jews, priests, as opposed to the more restricted areas of the temple itself, in which only Jewish males would have been allowed. And Jesus looks at all of this mayhem, this thriving market, and he picks up a rope and fashions it into a makeshift whip 
and he chases out the frightened animals, turning over the tables, spilling out the coins, and shouting, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. You can imagine it was quite a scene. I want to offer us a word of caution, though. We are reading an ancient text from the first century, and we must be careful how we interpret it. It's all too easy to read this text, and indeed to read the entire Gospel of John, anti-Semitically. And there has been and is a tendency within Christianity to embrace something we call supersessionism. That is to believe that Christianity replaces Judaism. And texts like this one are often read that way. But I want to remind you that Jesus cleanses the temple because he loves it. Not because he condemns it. It has value as a place of encounter with God. It is the dwelling place of God and he loves it. Now, all four Gospels have an account of Jesus doing something like this, clearing out the temple. In the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story appears near the end of Jesus' ministry, and it plays a role in those events that lead to his arrest and execution. And in those accounts, Jesus is responding, those Gospels write, to the greed and the corruption that Jesus sees there. He calls the place a den of robbers in the synoptics. But here in John's Gospel, the story's told differently. Jesus turns the tables in the temple in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, at the beginning of the story. And the gospel writer labels it as the second sign of Jesus' ministry. It occurs immediately after the first sign when Jesus turns water to wine at a wedding in Cana. And this is the first of three pilgrimages to Jerusalem that Jesus will take in John's gospel. So here in John, the disruption does not precipitate his arrest and execution. His enemies don't immediately meet and scheme for his demise. Something else is happening here in John's gospel. This we can think of as an opening act, perhaps a little bit of performance art by Jesus to illustrate a larger theme of John's gospel. It's always helpful to remember, as we try to understand what John is saying, that John uses irony and misunderstandings when he tells Jesus' story. So the narrative is always operating on two levels, kind of the action level and then the spiritual level. There's a deeper meaning to almost everything that happens in John. And that deeper meaning always seems to sail right over the heads of folks around Jesus. The church father Origen in his commentary on the Gospel of John saw no way to recognize, reconcile the differences between those synoptic gospel accounts at the end and John's account of the cleansing of the temple at the beginning. He couldn't see how you could 
reconcile it historically, and so he proposed a spiritual interpretation. And he approached the incident here in John's Gospel as allegory. And he said that the temple could be understood as a person's soul, or even the church itself. And he imagined that Jesus drives out the things that are barriers to our spiritual lives. In his reading, the cattle become all those earthly things which distract us. The sheep symbolize our tendency to irrationality and violence. The doves, the emptiness of our vanity. And the whip which Jesus uses becomes a symbol for origin of Jesus' powerful words, which have the power to transform our lives. I rather like Origen's approach. And yet, I think there's still more to this story. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We know that John's gospel was written sometime between 85 and 110 CE, well after the temple was destroyed by Roman legions in 70 CE. And we know that the question that would face both Jewish communities and the scattered, fledgling Christian communities was, what do you do now? What do you do when the temple has been destroyed? Where is God to be found when the temple is a pile of rubble? Once it had been a place of glory and pride and social identity, under Solomon's reign, then it was rebuilt under the diaspora. And then that second temple, temple had been a place of glory during the Maccabean revolt. And then with Herod's reconstruction, the temple had risen again to shine on the hill. But after its destruction, first century Jewish communities struggled with their religious identity. One later rabbinic tale kind of offers a glimpse for us of the transition that they were making from a sacrificial system based in Jerusalem to a new identity of what it meant to be Jewish emerging from the role of Torah for the community. And the rabbinic story goes like this. Once as Rabbi Jahanan ben Zakkai was coming forth from Jerusalem, Rabbi Joshua followed him. And he beheld the temple ruins, and he said, Woe unto us that this, the place where the iniquities of Israel were atoned for, is now laid to waste. My son, Rabbi Johanan, said to him, Be not grieved. We have another atonement as effective as this. And what is it? It is acts of loving kindness, as it is said, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In a similar way, those early Christian communities found themselves separating from Judaism and redefining themselves as well. How would they understand themselves and their heritage? And the writer of John's gospel is shaping a new understanding for his community. So think back to chapter 1, where he writes, And the word became flesh and lived among us. 
The Greek literally is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Pitched a tent. Tabernacled among us and we saw his glory. That language is important because it calls to mind the stories of God's presence with the Hebrew people during the Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the pillar of cloud of glory. You see, their treasured stories are becoming reinterpreted for a new day. So what might it mean in John's gospel when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up? What temple is he talking about? The religious authorities give voice to our confusion, and they ask, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? And the writer of the gospel adds an aside for us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Okay. So we could say the temple is a symbol of Jesus' body, his human body. The three days become the days of Jesus' death, and the resurrection is seen as the raising up in three days of the temple, his body. But, remember, we're reading John's gospel, and things are seldom simple in John's gospel, and they're never straightforward. Historically, the temple had been the dwelling place of God. It had been a cosmic meeting place linking heaven and earth. It is the house of God. And John takes the idea of God's dwelling place and invites his readers, invites you and I, to play with the idea of a dwelling place of God, to imagine afresh the places and the people in which God abides. So we go back to chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later, in verse 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. For John, the dwelling place of God is not restricted to a building, not even to the Temple Mount, but God is now dwelling among the community of believers. There is a paradigm shift happening here, and it's a theme throughout John's gospel, made prominent in Jesus' farewell address in chapter 14, where he reassures his followers, saying, those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. The Father dwells in Jesus, and Jesus in the Father, and Jesus and the Father are now abiding with each disciple. As Jesus says in chapter 15, make your home in me as I make mine in you. So here, John is using the temple as a construct of God's presence, and it's being reinterpreted for a community that is living on the other side of resurrection and with the reality of a temple in ruins. If God's dwelling place is now extended through Jesus into a community of believers, we might ask, what does it mean when Jesus says, and in three days I will raise it up? Now, perhaps that's a reference to his resurrection, but it's an odd construction 
because usually the Gospels refer to Jesus being raised up, not Jesus raising himself up, which adds to the possibility, I think, that the temple being raised up in three days is not Jesus' body, his physical body, but it's his body that is the community of disciples. That the group that was torn apart at his crucifixion, the ones that were scattered in the night, that were frightened and ran away, they are restored at resurrection. That the community of believers is the temple which Jesus raises up, which belongs to Jesus, in which Jesus dwells in and God dwells with them, restored by resurrection. So perhaps Origen of Alexandria with his third century allegorical interpretations of this passage may still hold some insight for us. If we, both individually and collectively, are the dwelling places of God, then what are the things that are distracting us from awareness of the sacred around us? Have we built up systems, barriers to experiences of the holy? Barriers for ourselves, for others. I imagine that chaotic marketplace on the Temple Mount as some labyrinth of distractions with booths of trinkets and elaborate hoops to jump through, all of which are keeping us from the God here and now who has pitched a tent with us. Wendell Berry in his poem, How to Be a Poet, writes, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. I wonder if the work of the church in our time is to chase out those distractions, to turn over those barriers to God, to bless anew the places we have so carelessly desecrated. In our devotional booklet for Lent, we are invited to light a candle of courage this week and to offer this prayer each day. God of love, help me live today in ways that consecrate the world, defend the vulnerable, protect what is good, and honor creation. That sounds like a good place to start for this ministry of blessing. May this community of Christ be such a holy place, to be such a temple, a dwelling place for God, alive and resurrected now and made sacred by Christ's good work. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well 
be kind, and always be the church where you are.